0: Well, good afternoon, everyone. Excited to dive back into church history this afternoon. Um, I, I know I underestimated how many people would show up, so I, I only printed so many bulletins, but hopefully each family got one as they walked in. Is there any family uh, or, or individual that needs a bulletin? I think we've got a few more left. Anybody? Just raise your hand. We got some that can, someone that can bring one around for you. All right, well, we're going to open up our afternoon with a reading from God's Word in Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. And while you're finding your way there, let me do some housekeeping, um, give you an idea of where we're headed as far as our study of church history goes. Um, we've spent the last three months uh, going through the, uh, the background issues that influenced the development of the early church. We looked at uh, the Jewish background, the Greek background, and the Roman background. And we're still in that early church uh, period, the, before the time of Nicaea, uh, so, we're looking at the first 300 years of church history, and there's a bit more background information that I'd like to cover before we, we move on in the story. Um, for those of you who haven't been with us, um, before the, uh, the shutdown and COVID and everything, during our Sunday school hour, we were going through a study on church history, and Pastor Kyle brought us up to the time of Constantine, about the year 300. And so all of those uh, lessons are available on YouTube, on Sermon Audio, if you'd like to dive in and get more information on this time period of history. What we've been doing is basically just supplementing uh, what was already done. Not, not redoing everything, but kind of filling in uh, some, some extra information. And so this afternoon, we're going to look at worship in the early church, uh, looking at the source documents and what that might have looked like, Uh, Next month, we're going to look at the authority structures of the early church. So we'll talk about the development of the canon of Scripture, um, the rule of faith, basically what we call the Apostles' Creed, and the development of the office of bishop. And then uh, in the the third month from now, um, I I debated doing this, um, but we're going to go over um, Antonician. Theology, not anti, not against Nicaea, but before Nicaea, theology proper. Um, and that's where we're dealing with uh, the doctrine of God and modalism or Sabellianism. I, I debated doing that, but uh, in God's providence, I've been working and I've run into. Uh, uh, oneness Pentecostal, one of the, one of the sites that I, I frequently deliver. And our exchanges back and forth have convinced me that, that that's an area of church history that would probably be uh, in our best interest to to cover, because essentially oneness uh, theology is nothing more than a rehashing of this ancient heresy of Sibelianism. So we'll consider that before we move on uh, and consider the Council of Nicaea. So with that out of the way... We'll go ahead and open our time with some scripture reading in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. day by day, those who were being saved. Amen. So uh, we're going to open up our time with prayer. Uh, Usually what I like to do is I like to take a prayer uh, recorded from the time period that we're studying. We're going to do something a little different, um, especially for a Baptist context. So this is why I'm hoping you got a bulletin as you walked in. We are going to do we're going to do a little bit of liturgy. I don't, don't anyone lose your mind. A little bit of liturgy is not going to kill you. So this is how this' is going to work. I'm going to invite you all to stand and I will read the first line, and you all will respond in unison with the bold font. Does that make sense? you understand what we're doing? This is taken from uh, Hippolytus's on the Apostolic uh, tradition, written sometime in the third century. So this is an ancient call to worship from the early church. Um, and so this will, be, this will be our opening prayer as we begin our time together. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord. It is fitting and right. We give you thanks, O oh God, through your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, whom in these last times you sent to us as Savior and Redeemer and messenger of your will, who is your inseparable Word, through whom you made all things, and whom by your good pleasure you sent from heaven to a virgin's womb, who was conceived and made flesh and manifested as your Son, born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin, who fulfilled your will and procured for you a holy people, stretching out his hands when he suffered, that he might free from suffering those who have believed in you. And we beseech you to send your Holy Spirit upon the gathering of your holy church. Gather them together and grant that all who partake of the holy things may be filled with the Holy Spirit for the confirmation of their faith in the truth, that we may praise and glorify you through your Son, Jesus Christ, through whom be glory and honor to you, Father, Son, and with the Holy Spirit, in your holy church. Both now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. See, that was fine. We, we did that just fine. The New Testament says that when we gather together in the church, that all things should be done decently and in order. However, the Bible never tells us exactly what order. We are to follow, right? We don't have a bulletin from the First Baptist Church of Ephesus, right? We do have uh, certain elements of worship that are commanded, or at the very least, certain elements are described. We see the reading of Scripture and preaching, prayer, singing, celebrating the Lord's Supper, even setting aside an offering for the relief of the saints, but how did the followers of Christ combine these elements together to order their corporate worship in the first Christian centuries? This afternoon, as we peer, with, uh, peer within the veil and catch a glimpse at the, of the church at worship, we will see things that are very familiar to us. We will also see some things that we might consider strange and bizarre. And as we consider these things, we need to keep some things in mind. First, understand that the resources that we have available to us on this subject are minuscule. And just because we see one church in a certain place doing something, doesn't mean that every church everywhere did the exact same thing. One scholar has put it, What is encountered in that history is not a single tradition but various traditions, some of which may be apostolic in their origins and others not. We have already seen in the quarter deciman controversy of the second century that the unity of the faith did not necessitate uniformity in worship practices. The church could and did put up with a certain degree of variety in worship, different churches did things differently. By the way, that spirit would not last forever. You get to the 7th and the 8th centuries, people are getting excommunicated because they have the wrong haircut. No joke, that was happening. Uh, So this spirit does not prevail for long, uh, but it is here in the early church. Another thing to keep in mind is that we don't want to make the mistake of saying that we need to change our worship practices here at Bethany in order to reflect some of these early uh, early Christian worship practices. This study is not intended to be a commentary on how worship should be done, but rather it is an attempt to describe uh, how they were doing things back then. And even though I am convinced that we can learn from the worship of the early church if we are to change the way we do anything here at Bethany. It should not be in an effort to conform ourselves to these ancient patterns, what one church was doing somewhere at some time, but change must always come from a conviction that what some of these churches were doing is more consistent with what the Scripture itself prescribes. So keeping those things in mind, uh, we dive in. Before we discuss what's going on during a typical early church service, let's discuss how someone got into the church in the first place. Of course, we're talking about baptism. A lot could be said here, and Christians have gone to great lengths to make sure that anything and everything that can be argued over baptism has been argued over. Who should get baptized? Professing believers? What about infants? And who should baptize? How should we baptize? Dunking, pouring, sprinkling? When should we baptize someone? Right after they profess faith in Christ? Or should there be a time of testing and instruction beforehand? Yet despite all these debates, one thing that Christians have generally agreed on is that baptism is important and that it is an ordinance or sacrament given by the Lord Jesus Christ that brings converts into the fellowship of the local church. Well, how did the early church baptize? We catch a glimpse in the oldest post-apostolic document that we possess, a writing called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, written probably sometime uh, at the end of the first century. The instructions that we have uh, come from chapter 7 of the Didache, and I've, uh, I've uh, uh, put that in your bulletin for you so you can follow along. The Didache says this, concerning baptism, baptize in this way. After you have reviewed all these things, baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. If you do not have running water, baptize in some other water. If you are not able to baptize in cold water, then in warm water. If you have neither, pour water upon the head three times in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Prior to baptism, let the one who baptizes and the baptism fast. And others, if they are able, instruct the baptism to fast one or two days beforehand. Also in its instructions concerning the Lord's Supper that we find later on in the Didache, chapter 9, uh, we find these words, But let no one eat or drink from your Eucharist, that is the Lord's Supper, except those who are baptized into the name of the Lord. For the Lord has also spoken concerning this. Do not give the holy things to the dogs. So we have instructions uh, before baptism, during baptism, the actual process of baptism itself, and after baptism. And, and as church history progresses, uh, each of these three parts or, or phases become more and more elaborate as people draw from biblical imagery to sort of add to what's happening here in, uh, in baptism. First, what's going on before baptism? Baptism. What preparations are being made before a person goes through the water? It's interesting to note that when we consider the New Testament, there doesn't seem to be much of a preparation at all. Uh, The gospel is preached, people respond, and right away, they're baptized. We see this in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. We see as many as 3,000 people baptized by the disciples. Uh, No membership class, no pastoral interview. Yet very early on in church history, uh, as the church becomes more and more Gentile in character, so you have people coming into the church that do not have the benefit of that Jewish background, what what the Jewish faith uh, taught, what the law of God commands. Very early on in church history, there seems to develop a universal practice of delaying baptism for a time of instruction or catechesis. A person undergoing catechesis would be called a catechumen. The Didache tells us, after you have reviewed all these things, baptize. All these things refers to the first six chapters of the Didache, which presents what it calls the two ways, the way of life and the way of death. Essentially, it's an elaboration of the Sermon on the Mount. And what's interesting to note is that this early catechesis is very much focused, not so much on doctrine, what you are supposed to believe, certainly it did involve that, but the emphasis seems to be how you should live. Remember, this is, this is largely a pagan audience that is now coming into the church, and they're coming in with all of this pagan baggage, with all the pagan immorality that comes with it. And so there is this intense time of instruction on how to obey the Lord and what the law of God requires of us. And how long does this catechumen last? last? Well, the Didache itself doesn't say. And different churches had different standards. Some churches, you could be a catechumen for 40 days. I saw one source say just a few days. Uh, other churches, you had to be a catechumen for three years, Uh, The apostolic tradition that we read from earlier uh, suggests a three-year period before becoming, uh, before being baptized and brought into the membership of the church. Well, aside from instruction, a preparation for baptism could also include days of fasting for the baptizened, that is the person that is to be baptized, the baptizer, and the rest of the congregation. Um, Have you ever thought about that? That when when we announce that someone is to to be baptized into the church, that maybe it would be a good time to uh, set aside prayer and fasting uh, for that person that is about to undertake this very serious ordinance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Among the more unique features that we see being described in the third century is exorcism. Everett Ferguson, a Bible a church history scholar, says that these baptismal exorcisms might involve oil, water, laying on of hands, the sign of the cross, breathing, and prayers. And Tertullian, we've seen Tertullian a lot in this uh, in our survey thus far on church history. Tertullian also describes a threefold renunciation of the devil and his pomp and his angels. Tertullian also indicates that preparation for baptism included prayers, fastings, bending of the knee, that is, confessing of sin, and all-night vigils. Um, What about the baptism itself? The Didache calls for baptism invoking a Trinitarian formula, into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. The water should be cold. Can you imagine? Uh, we, we've, thank, thank God we have a heater in there. <laughs> that usually works. Uh, but the, the Didache says that the water should be cold. Uh, baptism by immersion is interesting. is presented as the preferred method. However, the Didache does allow for certain exceptions if immersion is impractical. Sometimes uh, the sources tell us that people would be immersed not once, but three times. The Apostolic tradition talks about the baptismed being immersed three times in conjunction with a threefold creedal question and answer profession of faith. This is what the apostolic tradition says. When the one being baptized goes down into the waters, uh, the one who baptizes, placing a hand on him, should say thus Do you believe God in God the Father Almighty? And he who is being baptized should reply, I believe. Let him baptize him once immediately, having his hand placed upon his head. And after this, he should say, do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God? And what follows is basically what we find in the Apostles' Creed, if you're familiar with that. And when he has said, I believe, he is baptized again. And again, he should say, do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? And he who is being baptized should say, I believe, and so he should be baptized a third time. Now, one final curiosity should be mentioned. I talked about this a little bit last last time. Baptism in the early church was often done in the nude. Why? Uh, Well, one explanation is that baptism was viewed as a kind of bath. And when you take a bath, you usually don't have your clothes on. And uh, that, that's all I've got to say about that. What about after baptism? The Didache mentions only that the, the catechumens who before were barred access to the Lord's table are now able to partake of the Lord's Supper. Other ceremonies developed later on in the early church. The baptized would be clothed with a white robe, anointed with oil, hands were laid on them. And Tertullian mentions a meal of honey and milk. Very interesting. Honey and milk symbolizing that membership into the church is the fulfillment of life in the Old Testament promised land. There's that connection between uh, the church being the true spiritual Israel. Well, much more could be said about baptism. Everett Ferguson is uh, the standard authority on baptism in the early church. He's written a book that's like 800 pages thick um, So we could, we could spend a lot of time talking about baptism in the early church. But for sake of time, we move on now to consider the Lord's Day assembly and what that might have looked like. The most concise description of a typical Lord's Day service comes from Justin Martyr's first Apology, uh, written uh, sometime in the middle of the first century or second century, excuse me, about the year 150. And this is what uh, this is what Justin Martyr says, and I've again I have this for you in your handout. Justin says, "On the day which is called Sunday, we have a common assembly of all who live in the cities or in the outlying districts, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as there is time. Then, when the reader has finished." The president of the assembly verbally admonishes and invites all to imitate such examples of virtue. Then we all stand up together and offer up our prayers. And as we said before, after we finish our prayers, bread and wine and water are presented. He who presides likewise offers up prayers and thanksgivings to the best of his ability. And the people express their approval by saying, Amen. The Eucharistic elements are distributed and consumed by those present, and to those who are absent, they are sent through the deacons. The wealthy, if they wish, contribute whatever they desire, and the collection is placed in the custody of the president. With it, he helps the orphans and widows, those who are needy because of sickness or any other reason, and the captives and strangers in our midst. In short, he takes care of all those in need. Sunday indeed is the day on which we hold our common assembly, because because it is the first day on which God, transforming the darkness and prime matter, created the world, and our Savior Jesus Christ arose from the dead on the same day. For they crucified him on the day before that of Saturn, and on the day after, which is Sunday, he appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught them the things which we have passed on to you also for consideration. So using this description as sort of a baseline, we can look at the various elements that comprise worship in the early church. First off, we consider the Lord's Day. When did the church meet Justin is clear that the Christian's common assembly comes on Sunday, the first day of the week. And he gives a lengthy justification for why that is. We can see as early as the New Testament itself that Sunday is starting to assume an important place in the early church. Now we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in Acts chapter 20, the church gathering together on the first day of the week. Revelation chapter 1, uh, the Apostle John speaks about being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Uh, we, He doesn't define what he means by the Lord's Day. It's the only time in the New Testament where that phrase, Lord's Day, is used. However, if we look at the earliest writings just after the New Testament, that phrase, Lord's Day, is almost universally used to describe Sunday. And so the fact that... Uh, that is the case, suggests that John is indicating he is in the Spirit on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. That's probably the best explanation for what he means. The Didache instructs Christians on every Lord's Day, his special day, come together and break bread and give thanks, first confessing your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. I think I put a typo in in your handout and I said sons. I corrected it in my manuscript, but... The mistake made it into your handout. But this insistence on Sunday worship might lead us to ask, what about the seventh-day Sabbath? We see in the book of Acts that it was the custom of the Jews and of Jesus himself to gather together in the local synagogue for prayer and instruction in the Torah on the seventh day. So what's going on with the Sabbath? In the source documents, we find two distinct attitudes developing towards the seventh-day Sabbath and the Lord's Day. Uh, Those who kept both the seventh-day Sabbath and the Lord's Day, the the both-and approach, as it's so called, and those who saw the two days as distinct and mutually exclusive, the the either-or approach. Uh, it's this latter view, the either-or approach, that eventually comes to dominate the thinking of the early Christians. Jews kept the Sabbath, Christians kept the Lord's Day. Uh, there is an emphasis that Christians must make extra effort to labor on Saturday so that they don't get confused as Jews. I- I've, I've told that joke a time or two uh, elsewhere, but... Uh, I need to work really hard on on Saturday, or else people are going to think i 'm Jewish in the so called epistle of Barnabas, for instance, the author explains the present Sabbaths are not acceptable to me, but that which I have made in which I will give rest to all things and make the beginning of an eighth day that is the beginning of another world. Wherefore we also celebrate with gladness the eighth day in which Jesus also arose from the dead and was made manifest and ascended into heaven. There, in in the so-called Epistle of Barnabas, it wasn't written by Barnabas, but a lot of people thought so in the early church, and so it's it's kept that name. Um, But it is a fairly early document, about the year 100. Uh, We see this emphasis on the eighth day. So so not so much the first day of the week, but the eighth day, the day after the Sabbath. Uh, This emphasis on the beginning of God's new creation. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, in his letter uh, to the Magnesians, writes, Those who lived by ancient practices arrived at a new hope. They ceased to keep the Sabbath and lived by the Lord's Day, on which our life as well as theirs shone forth thanks to him and his death, though some deny this. So what were the reasons for keeping Sunday as the Lord's Day? We see in the literature that there are two arguments that are being offered. First, the most obvious, Sunday is the day when Jesus rose from the grave. Our worship on Sunday commemorates the Lord's resurrection. Second, in connection with the Lord's resurrection, we see this emphasis on Sunday being the beginning of God's new creation. This is what is meant by the eighth day, the day after the seventh Jesus' resurrection from the day is the dawning of the new heavens and the new earth, uh, the the eternal age, breaking into this present evil age. So when we gather on the Lord's Day, we not only look back to what Christ has done in in His resurrection, but we are also looking forward to the time when the fullness of the new creation comes when Christ returns. Now, because many Christians in the early church were slaves or belonged to the poor working class, the idea of Sunday being a Sabbath, a day of rest, this develops over time. Christians would gather early in the morning on Sunday before the sun rose and would dismiss in time for work to begin. And uh, typically, at the end of the workday, they would gather again for an evening service. Things began to change during the reign of Constantine. In the year 321, he declared Sunday to be a public holiday. Eusebius, writing around the same time, says this, The word transferred and established the celebration of the Sabbath to the rising of the light. He gave us a symbol of the true rest, the Lord's and first day of light. In this day of light, first day and true day of the sun, when we gather after six days, we celebrate the holy and spiritual Sabbath. And even as early as Tertullian, right, so we're talking about 200 uh, A.D., uh, Tertullian uh, speaks about Christians uh, that they ought to, quote, put off business in case we give opportunity to the devil. On the Lord's Day. So there is this idea that the the Lord's Day, Sunday, is to be a day of rest, a day of ceasing from uh, manual labor. And I I spent a lot of time talking about the Lord's Day um, because if you live long enough, someday, somewhere, you will be accosted by somebody that will try and tell you that going to church on Sunday is the mark of the beast and that Constantine is the one who changed the Christian observance of uh, the Sabbath, Saturday, to Sunday. Well, we see in the source documents, Christians are gathering on Sunday long before Constantine. So that, that, that line of reasoning falls flat on its face. Justin not only tells us uh, that Christians gathered on the Lord's Day, but he offers a brief description of what they did when they gathered, and first he mentions the ministry of the Word. He says, "...the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as there is time. Then, when the reader has finished, the president of the assembly verbally admonishes and invites all to imitate such examples of virtue." So notice this involved reading of Scripture and public exhortation, or a sermon. Touching on the text that was read. Justin speaks of the memoirs of the apostles, probably a reference to one of the gospels or one of the letters of the apostles, and the writings of the prophets, probably indicating portions of the Old Testament. Remember, when we look at this early period of church history, we're still living in a time when the canon of Scripture is not universally recognized by all the churches. Some Christians don't even have the entirety of what we call the New Testament. Uh, so this is, uh, the, the canonization of Scripture is, is a process. And books were extremely rare. Uh, they were not only very expensive to produce, uh, but very few people were able to read and write at this time. So there's very little quiet time, as we call it, or devotional time at home, uh, whatever Bible intake you received, you got from the local church. And so when they got together and they opened up the Scriptures, they would read, Justin tells us, as long as time permits. Christians usually had to work on the Lord's Day, so that's probably uh, the concern that's, that's um, constraining their time together. But if anyone is curious, the earliest post-apostolic sermon that we have available to us is a document called the Second Epistle of Clement, which is an unfortunate title because it is neither an epistle nor was it written by Clement. Um, It's an anonymous sermon preached sometime uh, in the middle of the second century around Justin's time. And you can go online and you can read it and you can get a flavor for what a sermon in the early church um, might have looked like. Next, prayer. Prayer. Justin mentions prayer taking place in the midst of the Lord's Day assembly. Then, when we stand up together and offer, then we all stand up together and offer up our prayers. Now, for our purposes this afternoon, let's briefly consider two things uh, the posture of prayer and the content of prayer. You'll notice that Justin says that the people stand up together when they pray. We don't think much about posture. Uh, When we pray, either privately or together, Uh, it's interesting when you're standing up here and you're leading worship and the time for prayer comes, you can see the congregation kind of shuffle as they assume the the praying position. Um, Why do we do that? Uh, How do we pray? We we fold our hands sometimes, we close our eyes, we we bow our heads, sometimes our whole body kind of assumes a a bowing posture. during our prayer time here at Bethany, uh, most of us uh, are usually seated. Um, we don't give much uh, much thought to uh, how we pray, the posture we assume when we pray. Um, in many ways, our, our modern posture in prayer would have been highly abnormal to the early church, if not downright offensive. Especially on the Lord's day, kneeling. Or prostrating ourselves, which was a sign of contrition, of confession of sin, that would have been deemed improper on the Lord's Day. You bend the knee at home. You confess your sins at home, and then you come and you gather together with the church on the Lord's Day, because the Lord's Day gathering is to be a time of celebration, um, not a sign of hu- not, not a time of humiliation. So when they prayed, they would generally be standing. Um, Pews weren't introduced into the church until uh, the time of the Reformation. The Reformation was necessary. Uh, But people, when they came to church, they stood. And so they would stand as they prayed uh, with their hands lifted up, their eyes open, gazing into heaven. Uh, Tertullian says of this posture, it is a sign of the cross when someone with extended hands reveres God with a pure mind, this kind of uh, cruciform uh, uh, posture that they would assume in their prayers. Um, which is very interesting. If someone uh, were to stand up in the middle of our corporate gathering during the prayer time with their hands lifted up in their eyes, I mean, I don't know about anybody else. My mind would be hard pressed to, to go through that whole process. Where I would think there's a, a weird charismatic that's wandered into our, our gathering on the Lord's Day. Uh, isn't that weird? Um, that that, that's, that, I mean, that's where my mind would go. Um, But that's how they would normally pray in the midst of their Lord's Day service. What about the content of the prayer? You'll notice that when Justin describes the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, he says, He who presides likewise offers up prayers and thanksgiving, there's the key, to the best of his ability. And the people express their approval by saying, Amen. He says that the Eucharistic prayer is offered to the best of their ability. And what does that imply? The early church used both formal prayers and spontaneous prayers. Uh, Formal prayers, what we might call uh, written prayers, although that would be anachronistic in this time period, uh, consisted first and foremost of the Lord's Prayer. During this time, the Lord's Prayer wasn't just a model for us to build our prayer off of, but it was a prayer to be prayed. The Didache, for instance, instructs Christians to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Other forms of prayer could have been the Gloria Patri, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, Amen. Or the Kyrie, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. These are examples of forms of prayer that have come down to us from the early Christian centuries. Moving on then to the Eucharist. That is the Lord's Supper. This is what Justin says, After we finish our prayers, bread and wine and water are presented, and he who presides likewise offers up prayers and thanksgiving to the best of his ability, and the people express their approval by saying amen. The Eucharistic elements are distributed and consumed by those present, and to those who are absent, uh, they are sent through the deacons. And this term, Eucharist, is the most popular term used for communion or the Lord's Supper in the early church, uh, coming from the Greek word meaning thanksgiving. Now, we call it the Lord's Supper, following Paul's designation in 1 Corinthians 11, though it's somewhat ironic because we don't actually have a supper. Uh, the, the words of consecration, as uh, they might be called in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, every, every Lord's day that we partake of the supper, those, those words are read. If you'll notice, they indicate that the bread and the cup are punctuated by a supper, by a dinner that was shared together. There was food enough for the gluttonous uh, to overstuff themselves, and there was wine enough that people could get drunk, and that was a problem in the church in Corinth. The early church called this meal the agape, or the love feast, But it wasn't long into church history that the bread and the cup become divorced from the supper. This seems to be the case in Justin's time. And now we just have a little piece of bread and we have a thimble of juice. This might have been done primarily for practical reasons. As the churches started to grow, it became harder to get everybody together once a week in a place with room enough for everyone to recline at table. Remember, when you're, they didn't sit at a table in chairs, they reclined um, uh, almost on uh, couches or what have you uh, when they ate. And as the church grows, you just don't have enough room for all that to take place. And so it might have just been for practical reasons that the, that the, the agape, the supper, was ditched. You'll notice that Justin describes the elements as bread and water and wine. Now, we're used to bread and wine, but what's the deal with the water? Well, the water was probably mixed with the wine to dilute it. And this is just how wine was drunk in the ancient uh, ancient times. Uh, Wine was much grittier back then, and diluting had the dual benefit of making it stretch so that everyone could partake of the Lord's Supper. What's interesting to note is that in later centuries, in certain churches, like in the the Catholic Church, I believe the Orthodox churches, but I'm not sure, and in some Anglican churches, the the water being added to the wine became part of the Lord's Supper liturgy. It became part of the ceremony. um, And a whole theology sort of developed around it. Uh, Kind of interesting how we see what was originally done for just basic practical reasons, uh, develops its own theology uh, later on in church history. You'll also notice that one of the responsibilities of the deacons in the early church was to take a share of the bread and wine to those who were not present. Uh, These may have been the sick or the elderly, those who were not well enough to, to leave their home, it may have been to those who were in prison as well. Those who remember, we're, we're talking about a time when Christianity is outlawed, um, and just uh, being baptized uh, could be a death sentence. We'll, we'll talk about the offering just in passing. There's an offering collected, Justin describes. Uh, the wealthy, if they wish, contribute whatever they desire, and the collection is placed in the custody of the president. With it, he helps the orphans and widows, those who are needy because of sickness or any other reason, and the captives and strangers in our midst. In short, he takes care of all those in need. Justin has in mind a monetary contribution that only the wealthy could afford. In America, that essentially means every one of us, essentially. It was given freely without compulsion. And whereas we tend to emphasize that the money collected for our, our gifts and offerings goes to the work of the gospel, uh, the work of ministry, the emphasis in Justin is the relief of the poor and the needy. Now, this is how Justin describes an early church Lord's Day gathering. But you might be wondering, what about the music? Didn't the early church sing? And yes, they most certainly did. Uh, Everett Ferguson um, Uh, has this quote. He says, references to Christian singing abound in patristic literature. Uh, In fact, one of the earliest descriptions that we have of Christian worship comes from a pagan, Pliny the Younger, um, uh, I think I put that in your handout last month, But in that letter uh, that he he wrote to the Emperor Trajan at the beginning of the 2nd century, he describes Christians gathering together to, quote, sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. So what were Christians singing? There is no doubt that the book of Psalms would have been a primary source for ancient Christian song. But they would have sung their own compilations as well. Uh, We have what what is called the Odes of Solomon that was discovered um, at the the beginning of last century, I believe. It's a collection of 42 hymns um, written by Christians sometime in the first two Christian centuries. How would they have sung? Well, we have evidence that they sang congregationally, much in the same way that that we do. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, writing at the beginning of the second century, says... Therefore, in your agreement and harmonious love, Jesus Christ is sung. Become a choir, one by one, so that being harmonious in love, taking up the song of God in unison, you may sing to the Father with one voice through Jesus Christ, so that he may both hear you and perceive, because of what you do, that you are members of his Son. They would have sung responsively as well. Uh, for instance, the reader would sing a portion of a hymn or a psalm and the congregation would uh, repeat, would respond with a repeated refrain. Alleluia, amen, or his mercy endures forever, something like that. We even have reference of a person, one person singing while the others listened. Sort of a solo. Um, Tertullian writes, After water... For washing the hands and lights, each is invited to sing publicly to God as able from holy scripture or from their own ability. Thus, how each has drunk is put to the test. If you've ever been to a karaoke bar, you're probably familiar with how that works. What about instruments? The general consensus was negative. Instruments, because of their association with uh, pagan rituals or Jewish customs, were usually avoided. But what about all those verses in the Psalms that suggest the use of instruments in praising God? Well, these were usually dismissed as temporary. God uh, allowed that in the Old Covenant in order to guard the Jews against wandering into idolatry. Or they would have allegorized uh, those portions of Scripture. The, the, those instruments uh, are uh, represent different parts of the body. And that's how they would have, they would have dismissed certain of those texts. Uh, I think Calvin, uh, John Calvin, makes the same argument as well. So much more could be said, and maybe we'll have time to open up some other things during the Q&A. But having considered all these things, we might ask, what is the value in studying Worship practices of the early church. Well, one thing I hope is evident from our survey, aside from some slight odd details, the Lord's Day gathering of the ancient church, with its Bible reading and exhortation, its prayers and offering, the Lord's Supper praising God in song. I hope all of this sounds very familiar. Consider this in light of the claims of certain churches today. Many people are fleeing their shallow evangelical churches for something that boasts of more ancient roots. I drive home every day from work, and I pass by an Eastern Orthodox church in Modesto, and outside on their front lawn they have this massive sign that reads, Come home to the church of the apostles. And the church's website... I looked this up last night. The church's website claims, incredible as it seems, and it seems pretty incredible, for over 20 centuries, the, she, the, the Orthodox Church, has continued in her undiminished and unaltered faith and practice. Today, her apostolic doctrine, worship, and structure remain intact. Many people, especially young people, millennials, are being lured through this seduction of the liturgy to join Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic churches. I've known a few people in my own own life who have have made that move, and I know I myself have felt that pull in times past. A few years ago, there was also a famous uh, convert in particular. Many of us probably know of Hank Hanegraaff, the so-called Bible Answer Man. I don't know if he gets called that anymore. He shouldn't be called that anymore. Many of us probably remember the news when Hanegraaff had converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. The story got picked up in newspapers. The Charlotte Observer ran this piece. It said, like his listeners, Hanegraaff had long identified himself as an evangelical Christian but a few years ago, he found himself growing disillusioned with evangelicalism, with its megachurches, its star pastors, and its devotion to branding. So Hanegraaff became a seeker. His exploring and Googling led him to St. Nectarios. I opened the door, this is Hanegraaff speaking, I opened the door of that big cathedral, and the moment I did, the sights. Sounds and smells engaged me, said Hanegraaff, who found a church with icons, chants, and incense. I thought, I'm here to worship God. This is not about what I'm going to get. Well, experience isn't unique. But what Hanegraaff walked into that morning, with its smells and bells, its icons and incense was nothing like what Justin Martyr would have known in his day. In fact, Justin Martyr, I know he's not a Protestant. He's certainly not a Reformed Baptist. But Justin might as well have been describing a typical Sunday here at Bethany. There's something pure and beautiful About this apostolic simplicity that transcends the ages. And we've maintained it here at Bethany, not by trying to conform ourselves to Justin's church or some other ancient church, but by doing what I imagine Justin's church was doing striving to be faithful to the form of worship that God commands in His Word. That's what the regulative principle is all about. And with God's help, I hope we will maintain it here at Bethany. All right, well, that's all I have for you. Uh, we will have a time of QA. I'm sure people have questions. So uh, a mic will be passed around. And if you have questions, now would be a time to ask. And maybe I can answer. We'll see.
1: All right, it's not six today, only four. So I'm going to give you the. Option, you want to go off my baptism, Sunday worship, prayer, or communion? Which question do you want to address?
0: Go ahead. Whichever one. All right. Um.
1: Sunday worship. Yeah. I'll choose that one. Baptism might be a little more controversial. We can talk about that one. Did the, uh, it's two part. One, did the Didache specifically ever mention Sunday as the Lord's Day, equating those two specifically?
0: Um, I don't believe it does identify Sunday as the Lord's Day. I'm not sure. All right. I'm not sure.
1: This wasn't the other part of it, but are you speaking specifically about Seventh-day Adventists calling Sunday the... Okay. So kind of with that thought in mind... um, do you know of any contemporaries of the writer of um, the quotes that you gave us, um, Ignatius, Eusebius, uh, Eusebius? So anywhere between the first and the third century early on, do you know of any other contemporaries of those writers who would argue for um, Christian worship to be held on Saturday, or does it seem with all of our uh, resources that we have in church history that it was pretty unanimous a Sunday affair?
0: There's no one that is opposed to Sunday worship, as far as I'm aware of. There might have been in some of the more Judaizing sects; those those continued on um, into the second and third centuries. Um, there there was a perspective that adopted the both-and approach, uh, suggesting that you keep both the Sunday sat or the the, the the Saturday Sabbath and the Sunday Lord's Day. So there was that perspective that floated around. Um, the apostolic tradition, I think, uh, is a representative of that view. Um, so, so you do see that, where, where you have people doing both, but no one is, as far as I know, no one is saying we should not gather on Sunday. We should only be gathering on Saturday. No one's making that claim. Um, I just didn't have a pen handy, and I still don't. What What was the name of the the you said like forty psalm or hymns that they found? What was
2: the name of that again? Uh,
0: Odes of Solomon. Okay. Um, did I did I include that? In uh... I did. It, it's 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 there in the uh, in the handout. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you can find those online if you if you want to uh, get an idea of some of the things they were singing. Any other questions or thoughts?
1: All right. So when it comes to prayer, I've actually asked some other brothers this out of curiosity. I've tried to look at it myself. Maybe you might have stumbled across something, but when did the uh, closing of eyes become a tradition in prayer and Uh, why?
0: I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Since you don't,
1: since you don't have, does anybody else have an answer for that? <laughs> give it. The last one then. Uh, when did grape juice replace wine?
0: Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I think uh, other brothers have looked into that and could probably talk more about that. Uh, I do believe grape juice, though, is, is a modern day, like 1800 invention, right? Pro-
2: prohibition. What was that? It was. It started with prohibition. Prohibition. Oh, Dr. So Welch's unfermented communion yeah. wine.
0: Oh wow! Okay. Just on the the prayer topic, posture-wise, I think when we if we think about the text that we know of um, throughout Scripture, you definitely see a resounding uh, standing hands uh, in the air yeah. is definitely a common posture uh, that we would see as. Uh, Described uh, in the scripture. I don't know that we see any prescriptions anywhere, but certainly it was a, a common practice for uh, not just, uh, I, don't, I don't think just new covenant, but old covenant. So,
3: yeah.
2: I'm done. Any other
0: questions or comments? Thoughts? No one wants to ask about infant baptism. Nope.
1: <laughs> All right, I'll do the baptism one. All right, so instead of asking a question, I'll give you an example. Say I'm an, I'm, you're an elder of a church. I'm a new believer. I'm convicted by the word after being, um, after being uh, born again. I'm convicted by the word to get baptized immediately but you would have me go through whatever process, looking at even at the dedicate, whatever else, right? Where would you be able to go to Scripture to hinder me from getting baptized in order that I would not be sinning against the Spirit that now dwells within me?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think understanding the church's responsibility in exercising the keys and we see that laid out in uh, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 Um, understanding that that what the church is doing in baptizing an individual is uh, affirming this person's profession of faith that it is a true credible profession of faith Um, I I think that that lends itself to the idea that, that we need to be not 100% certain. Of course, we, we can't know people's minds and hearts. Um, but I think that would be one place I would go to, to try and argue for... Uh, it's good at least to, to know the person that's being baptized before uh, before actually baptizing that person. One of the elders might might have a, uh, more to say on that.
3: Yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, remembering, uh, Rich, that the book of Acts is... Uh, uh, descriptive not prescriptive right so it tells us what happened it doesn't tell us that that's how the church must do it right and I think what Thaddeus was hitting on remembering the, Christ has given the correct administration of the ordinances to the church not to the individual right so just like if someone came to me and said hey I have in my conscience I'm convicted that I'm not partaking of the Lord's Supper every day his conscience is not what dictates how we then celebrate or whether we celebrate the ordinance you know what I mean Rather, that's given to the authority of the church to determine the right administration. It's like, no, Lord's Supper can only happen when the church is gathered. It's not something for the individual just to do. You know what I mean? So we would be pushing back, like, no, that's not in your hands. You know, to Thaddeus' point about the keys. The keys are given to the church, not to the individual. Um, And so I would apply that similarly to baptism. And obviously, we don't want to make people delay any more than they should. You know what I mean? But to Thaddeus' point... We want to make sure that, especially as elders, but as the whole congregation, since we're congregation, we want to make sure that whoever we are admitting to the waters of baptism and thus into church membership are those who show clear evidence that they believe in Christ, they've they're repenting of their sins, uh, they're pursuing um, the glory of God in the fear of God. you know what I mean? And so, that can be clearer or less clear depending on the person. You know what I mean? Some cases are more difficult to discern than others. Um, So that's kind of the category. That's where I would go to, to, to argue not that you must wait a certain period, but I do think it takes wisdom to make sure that we are, we want to guard the idea of a regenerate church membership. We want to make sure that to the best of our ability, we're only admitting those who show evidence that they're actually converted. Um, and every church is going to land in a different place on what, what that looks like, how long that takes. Um, there are some people that we've moved more quickly with and some people that we've moved more slowly with um, just because we're wrestling through those. Like we're, we're not, we're, we are fallible, and so we're trying to do our best seeking the Lord's wisdom to discern genuine faith versus a false professing faith. You know what I mean? Does that kind of help answer your question? Not really. It helps table yes. are you saying like say someone say someone asked whether you even should guard the waters of baptism you're saying what what's the biblical precedent for that Maybe. well i mean in that sense i think just obvious texts like it's those who repent and believe who are admitted to baptism right um the apostles didn't go around baptizing everyone without a profess, profession of faith you know so i think implicit in those things you have the idea of the waters of baptism are those have trusted Christ. Yeah. Yeah, sure. If I was, and I right? yeah, that I was
1: right? I felt
3: Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to make sure I under, I'm understanding exactly what you're asking. Um, what, what part of that are you looking to be addressed biblically? The idea of whether you're sinning against your conscience by not... In- yes, and how,
1: how would I not be sinning against and those who would prevent me from getting baptized? Yeah. How are they not causing a brother to stop
3: them? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'd have to think through like a particular text or whatever, but, and I don't want to repeat everything I've already said again, just just to repeat it. Um, but it would be, again, along the lines of recognizing. Like, I, I think as a new believer, you should have a desire to be baptized. That's a good sign. That's, a, that's the first command of obedience, right? So I would not at all, I don't think anyone should have a bad conscience wanting to obey the Lord, but understanding there's a proper way to go about this in the, in, the church, you know, and the church recognizing and receiving members and things like that. So I would want to counsel them, hey, again, or, you know, the thief on the cross, baptism is not what's going to get you into heaven. So whether it happens right now or a month from now is not going to change. Whether, like, if you're trusting Christ now, you're justified. You're, You're on your way to heaven. You know what I mean? So, but at the same time, we don't, because we believe that The ordinances are tied together. We believe that biblically there's an order of baptism as your entrance into the covenant community and that's when you then have access to the Lord's table just like Thaddeus I don't remember which quote it was but it mentioned that connection of those who are baptized are those who are eligible to come to the table. So we've had people who are like chomping at the bit. I want to come to the Lord's table. I want to come to the Lord's table but they haven't been baptized and we have to have that conversation with them of like hey I want to see you at the Lord's table too, but biblically there's an order. You don't go to the Lord's table before you've actually identified with Christ's church publicly through baptism. And so we don't want to extend that extremely long, but at the same time there is going to be some process of time. So I, I don't, I'd have to think through a, a, like giving you different texts to build each one of those upon, but that's kind of how we would up, approach it.
2: So I think something else, you're talking about, like, the issue of sinning against conscience. If I'm convicted that I ought to do something, and my church is preventing me from doing that, right? If we have members in the church who are convicted that they ought to speak in tongues, the church is saying, no, don't do that. If we have members who are convicted that they ought to be doing all kinds of crazy things, and the church is saying, no, don't do that. But being baptized before you're known, being baptized apart from the blessing of the local church is crazy. Being baptized as a rogue Christian is crazy, right? Being baptized apart from the body is crazy. And so that's one of those things where we would say that the fact that you feel convicted that you ought to do something does not mean that it is true and right. And so your conviction needs to be brought into conformity with God's word. You need to yield to the right, the rightful authority of the church, of the congregation, of the elders, um, in administering baptism, and so that's where I think that that would come in. Is just okay. You have a, a your conscience is convicted about something that's not according to Scripture, and so you need to change your mind to be conformed to the pattern of Scripture. Um, as far as the authority of the church to withhold baptism or delay baptism, I think that really ties in very closely with the concept of church discipline, uh, that the elders are those who are to guard the flock from false Christians, and part of that means examining those who want to join themselves to the flock. Um, So I would point to those passages that deal with church discipline and guarding the flock from wolves. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's why I was on this one <laughs> <laughs> equivalency to, to, very clear should be but it's not there, the to be but that, I, I it's just a minute, and
0: again not Amanda had yes.
2: well, different this topic will be, it's this, a different topic yeah, this will but, be our last question before we yeah, close real, in prayer really quickly if you understand um, where did like the whole um, iconography of the Eastern Orthodox Church, when did that begin? Is it because of the illiteracy rates and how that was kind of like a yeah. was that was it more is that kind of their defense of it? And I, and I know there's way more yeah. spiritualism in you know injected into those today But when did that start?
0: So uh, that's a little bit beyond what we're looking at in, in this study. Um, uh, the general consensus in the early church was uh, a prohibition on on icons, on pictures of, of saints or what have you in in, in the congregation in the gathering. Um, I, I would have to study that a little bit more to speak more definitively to it. I think in the eighth century uh, there was a church council. I believe it was the eighth century, um, one of the ecumenical councils, where it was agreed that. That was permitted. Um, you would have had uh, disagreement before then uh, about the that being whether that was proper or not. I would have to look into that a little like, bit more. About, no. no, no, no. All right. Um, I will close us in prayer, and then um, Brother Aaron will come and. We will, uh, we will have our uh, concluding song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have called us to be your people, Lord. That you have given us your Holy Spirit, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord. We're thankful for uh, the brothers and sisters who have gone before us and who have, um, who have preserved for us this legacy of of worshiping you in accordance with what you have commanded in Scripture. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to renew our minds, to uh, test uh, all things according to your will as it is revealed in the Bible. Lord, that we might only worship you in a way that is consistent with your word, that our worship to you would be pleasing um, and acceptable in your sight. We know, Lord, that that is only possible because Jesus Christ, our Lord, has died for us, has been raised for us, and now sitting at your right hand intercedes on our behalf, providing for us a way that we might enter into your presence and worship you, Lord, um, and offer up uh, sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and of contrite hearts. Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we continue our survey of church history. Uh, Guard us from error as we consider these various things and build us up in that most holy faith that you have delivered once and for all to the saints. Lord, we pray your mercy upon us in Jesus' name.